Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Reading verses 8 and following. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It was the week my mother died that I called a friend, fellow minister. Uh, we had known each other for some time. We'd shared conferences together. He'd stayed in our home. I'd stayed in his home, knew the, his family well, and for some years had been part of a small group uh, that encouraged him in his work. He was known as the best preacher we had in our generation. I'd had some concerns about his theological shifting. I'd expressed them to one or two people. But I wanted to keep a door open to him. And in any case, he was a friend, and I wanted to tell him what had happened in my life. He was unusually reticent, even cold, and really wanted only to say to me to expect a letter. The letter, when it came, was to tell me that he was leaving his wife and family, leaving the ministry for an alternative lifestyle, It wasn't long before it hit the headlines of the newspapers and even the television. In the last couple of weeks, a well-known author, former pastor, here in the United States, announced last week that he was leaving his wife and announced this week that he had abandoned his faith. On his Instagram account, he, he said this, By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. He went on to clarify what had happened to him. He said, To the secular world, what's happened to me is deconstruction. The biblical phrase for it is falling away. Throughout this book of Hebrews, the author has repeatedly warned people about falling away. Over and over again, 
If there is one consistent message throughout this book, sounded from chapter 2, really, right through to the end, and here again in these words that we've just read. It is a warning. It's a warning to those in the covenant community, a warning to the baptized, a warning to those who have made a profession of faith, a warning to those in leadership, a warning to those in the pulpits, a warning to those who publish books and make money from the religious public. It's a warning to all of us in this room this morning. It's the danger of falling away. But also throughout this book, the author has consistently reminded us of one constant. He reminds us of it in chapter 13 and verse 8 here. Jesus Christ, he says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He stakes it out for us. His unchangeable divine nature as God. By extension, His eternal being, both as our God and as our Savior, both as our benefactor and as our advocate. He announced it right at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the same, He says. Here He repeats it, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because Jesus Christ stands as the one constant in all of humanity. His is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He remains unchangeably the object of our faith, the subject of our confession, that we have only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, And the author places it before our gaze once again. Jesus Christ, the same, the same. But then he draws from that some conclusions that I want us to look at this morning. Here's the first. Because Jesus is the same, we shouldn't be deceived. We shouldn't be deceived. Look how he describes these people. He goes on to say this. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Now, again, you see, he's brought up again once more before us this matter of apostasy, this this matter of shifting, shifting our ground, of getting to a place, tragically, where somebody could say that by all the measurements I have for defining a Christian— I am not a Christian. What's happened? They are drawn away, he says, led astray, swept away by the river, as it were, or or, or a boat that's been diverted from the direction it was going in and led into error. Our author is warning us. He's warning all of us. He's warning the churches throughout time that there is a danger for us as individuals and as churches of being swept away by all kinds of strange teaching. But perhaps he's talking to some group, a group that are, are not sufficiently grounded in the truth, unable to detect error or avoid error. 
But neither of these two men that I've described to you this morning is in that category. Neither of those two men were ignorant or insufficiently grounded in the Word of God. Neither of those two men did not know the truth from error and the right from wrong. They were very well informed. No, he's not just addressing those that we might describe as weak or unstable. He's addressing all of us in this room. And what he's doing is here, do you notice, he is contrasting what we might call the singularity of truth and the multiplicity of error. He's spoken to us again and again in the book, and he's done it again here in verse 8, of the stability of the immutable and unchangeable Christ. But here, he warns against diverse and strange teachings in the plural. Throughout the book, he's been eager to keep the focus on the Messiah who remains eternally, timelessly constant. But here he's talking about people who are in danger of wandering around in the labyrinth of alien teachings instead of standing firm on the apostolic truth. He calls these teachings diverse because one error leads to many errors. He says that these teachings are, are strange. What does he mean by that? He means that they, these false teachings are of a different species from the truth. They're incompatible with the truth. In fact, he's suggesting to us that there is an astonishing variety and fecundity about false teaching. That is, not only is it varied, but it is very fruitful. It, it multiplies. It, it's to be found everywhere. It's like a weed or weeds. Now, weeds are very much in my mind these days. Since Christine had her operation, she has set me to task, and she's, she says, taught me how to deal with weeds. If you asked her, she'd tell you, what has Liam learned from your from your incapacity for a little while. She will tell you, Liam has learnt about weeds. And I have to some degree, that's true, of course. She's here this morning, so I have to mind my P's and Q's. But there's no question about it. Weeds seem to multiply. You pick them up, you deal with them, the next day, there they are again. You think you've eradicated them, and there they are again. It's the most frustrating exercise on the face of planet Earth, which is why I delegated it 47 years ago to her. <laughs> there is a fecundity. There is a, there is a fruitfulness, a constant upsurge of error and evil that we need to be aware of. And the author is concerned about the danger of us being led away by this very real threat. And we find the same kind of language used elsewhere in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul uses the same word when he says that people are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It's the image of a ship at sea being tossed around and being driven off course in a storm. In uh, 2 Timothy, 
Chapter 2, we read of people who have swerved from the truth, swerved away from the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read about those who have been led astray by various passions. So it's possible that your deviation from the truth is not simply led by your mental processes or your intellectual thoughts, but rather has been driven by your passions, that is, by your sinful desires. And he goes on to say this, that these people who've been led away by their various passions go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, what does the writer assume in making this statement? He assumes that there is such a thing as divine revelation, that God, as he says in chapter 1, verse 1, has spoken to our fathers by the prophets, and that he's spoken to us in these last days by a son, his son. He is assuming that you understand that that revelation of God has been written in Holy Scripture, that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. That is the foundation of our rule of faith. That's the foundation on which we are to stand. And those Holy Scriptures, that divine revelation, is to be believed and obeyed by Jesus' people. But secondly, he also assumes that this age in which we live is an age that will be characterized by the spawning of errors. When Jesus was in the flesh here on earth, the devil manifested himself in the demon-possessed people. You remember, he would infest people demonically. It was a kind of imitation of the incarnation. Here is a a demonic incarnation using a human being with the powers of darkness. But since Jesus has gone to heaven, the devil has assumed a new modus operandi. Now his modus operandi is to spawn error. That's why from the very earliest days, you have it here in Hebrews, you have it in the writings of the, the New Testament generally, you find that there is the beginning of error in the church. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, the appointment of elders in the church is directly linked to the growth of false teaching in the church. And it's been a hallmark of this age since Jesus went back to heaven and before Jesus comes again that there will be errors and heresies abounding. Now, what does heresy and error look like? Well, on the one hand, it may consist on a frontal assault against some truth of the Bible. The Holy Trinity, for example. The Holy Trinity is the core of our Christian faith. It is our Christian faith. We believe in one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Apart from that, everything else is redundant. Without that, everything else is redundant. That's why, both in the early church and at the time post-Reformation, 17th century, beginning with the Socinians, going into the 18th and 19th century with German philosophers and theologians, 
20th century with evangelicals, the attack has been on the Holy Trinity. And you could find it in the Southern Baptist Convention, and you can find it in the liberal churches, and you can find it all over the, the evangelical world. The Holy Trinity has been under assault. Or it could be an attack against the atonement, or the resurrection, or Holy Scripture, or on the way of salvation. On the other hand, it could be an attack on practices, as they are here, that don't promote spiritual growth. Here he specifies, notice, he specifies foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, ignore the word foods for a moment. We'll come back to that. But notice that there are, there's a practice here to which people are devoted. So they think they're doing a right thing. They think they're doing a good thing. They think that they are doing something that will promote spiritual life within them and develop their moral sense and so forth. They're devoted to this thing, thinking that it will do them good, although the author says it hasn't benefited them, really, when it comes down to it. Now, we don't actually know what he had in mind. We don't know whether he's thinking in the way which Paul describes in the Corinthians when he talks about abstaining, abstaining from things. And uh, he talks about people who abstain from certain foods, food offered to idols, certain drinks, alcoholic drinks or whatever. Uh, and they'd pursued abstention as a way of growing spiritually. Paul tells them in Corinth, that isn't helping you grow spiritually. Spiritual growth doesn't come from abstention from things that don't matter at all. Okay? So he tells them what you eat and what you drink is an irrelevance to your spiritual life. An irrelevance. So that's not the, that's not the issue. So it could be by abstention, but however, it's more likely here that he's talking about something that involves our participation in something. Our participation in something. And he goes on then to talk about an altar, the altar that we have, which contrasts with another altar, that is the altar that's in Jerusalem at the temple, which is still extant by this stage, where the sacrifices are offered, and so on. These people are Jews, converted Jews, that's why they're called Hebrews. Uh, and uh, it seems that there were elements from their former life that they thought that they could take and participate in, and that by participating in these elements from their former life, that they would thereby grow spiritually and be stronger Christians. They thought more, maybe more of a little bit of Jewish flavor to our Christianity will make our Christianity more vital, more real, and so on. And the author says, well, you thought that, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You haven't grown. It's not helping you to grow at all. And what the author is teaching us here, whatever the specifics are, and we don't know them because we don't need to know them. We need to know the principle. The principle is that it's very easy for us to introduce foreign elements, elements that are foreign to Christianity, in order to prove to ourselves or to prove to other people 
how disciplined we are, how godly we are, how committed we are. Now, I have a, an up-to-date illustration of this. The newspapers in the United Kingdom in the last few months have been telling the story of an evangelical leader and other evangelical leaders who have used a technique they, which they say is designed to teach young men discipline in their Christian life and to teach young men to become men in the kingdom of God, to be strong, bold men. And it involves frequent meetings where one is naked, where there are naked beatings and naked massages, and all with a view to a spiritual end. This is the argument. I've seen the argument. I've seen what, what has been said in the interview to the, in the newspaper. The argument is, oh, we, we were doing this for spiritual reasons. We were teaching each other to be disciplined by, by thumping each other's backsides. It's very easy to introduce a foreign element to Christianity with the excuse of doing it for a spiritual reason. For excuse it is. That phrase that Paul uses, deceiving and being deceived. It is evil. There's another reason for nakedness, and it isn't a good godly reason. It's a sinful reason. It is a wicked thing disguised as Christian. Even the world knows that. Even the world knows that. So because Jesus is the same, we shouldn't be deceived. Secondly, because Jesus is the same, we can't, we can't be destabilized. Do you see how he goes on to talk, rather? He says, rather, your heart's should be strengthened by grace. It's in our hearts that we get led away, led astray. Well, our hearts are to be stabilized and secured by the gift that God has already given us, by His grace. You think of grace as a gift, don't we? We, we read about grace as a gift in Romans where, where God does this great thing for us. We trust in Christ, and we are shown God's gift as a gra uh, grace as a gift by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God's free gift to us on the basis through the instrumentality of faith alone in Christ alone for our salvation. That's the grace. And, and not only is grace a gift, but that's given that, it, that uh, on the basis of a work done for us in that Christ acted for us and Christ won our salvation for us, but also God's work in us, the work of the grace of God through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That gift is embraced by the heart. What is the mark of the new covenant? It is that we'll be renewed in our hearts. The grace of God stabilizes, steadies, strengthens our hearts. Literally, our hearts are made secure by the grace of God. By hearing about God's unshakable kingdom, God's unchangeable king, 
We don't need to stray away into false teachings that are unprofitable. They only try to deal with external matters. But the gospel of the grace of God deals with the heart. Because Jesus is the same, we shouldn't be destabilized. We can't be destabilized because of the grace of God. Thirdly, because of Jesus is the same, we mustn't be discouraged. We mustn't be discouraged. Jesus is our great high priest. He's told us that. He, he refers here to Jesus suffering outside. He talks about an altar that we have. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tent or the tabernacle or the temple, those Old Testament priests, they cannot come and eat with us because we have an altar they don't have. Why? We have a priest they don't have. Our great high priest is Jesus. He's been telling us that all over this book. He's been telling us that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins once and for all on the cross. That's what He came to do. He came to offer one sacrifice for sins on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus gives his flesh pinned to that cross for the life of the world. Then he goes on to say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. What does it mean to eat and drink here? Well, earlier on, Prefacing this whole section in John chapter 6, Jesus says this, Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. I come to Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I receive what His sacrifice, the crucifixion of His flesh meant, the shedding of His blood means. And yes, I come to his table, although the view of the author or John in John 6 may not be the Eucharist primarily, it surely is secondarily because it's at the table that we come and we feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. By faith. We feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. Now, says the author, we shouldn't be discouraged because Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the holy city, the temple, the holy place. Jesus suffers for us in the unholy place, outside the city wall. He takes on him 
our unholiness, our unrighteousness, our sin. He takes our place outside the wall, and He dies for us there in our place. And it's by that death that He constitutes a new covenant community. It's in that place that He fulfills all the types and shadows, all the promises and predictions of Scripture. It's there that He sanctifies us, that is, sets us aside to be what? To be His people, to be His church, to be His body, to be His elect. He purchased the church with His own blood, He says. It says that He washed us from our sins by His own blood. And when He suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem, He spelled the end of sacrifice and offering there. He spelled the end of the church state of Israel there. He spelt the last sacrifice that can really deal with sin and reconcile men and women to God had been accomplished by Him there. John Owen puts it like this, the Lord Jesus, out of His incomprehensible love to His people, would spare nothing, avoid nothing, deny nothing that was needful for our sanctification, reconciliation, and dedication to God. We have an altar. If you read the fathers, Ignatius and Polycarp, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, and read Thomas Aquinas. Here's what Thomas Aquinas says. This altar is either the cross of Christ on which Christ was sacrificed for us, or Christ Himself, in whom and through whom we come to God. Christ crucified. And by suffering outside the gates with the world, He deals with our unholiness, and He brings us to God so that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Leo the Great is one of the great preachers of history, And Leo the Great wrote this, when Christ offered Himself to the Father a new and true sacrifice of reconciliation, He was crucified not in the temple, whose worship was now at an end, not within the confines of the city, which for its sin was now to be destroyed, but outside, outside the gate, so that on the secession of the old symbolic sacrifices, a new victim might be placed on a new altar, the cross, that he might be the altar not of the temple, but for the world. Now, the author gives us three things that he wants us to do in light of all of this. He says to us, join Jesus. Join Jesus outside the camp. What does it mean to join Jesus? It's to go to that bloody place where he died, under the curse of God, place of death, place of uncleanness. Go to that place 
that is, an absolutely, that is absolutely objectionable, both to the Roman and to the Jew. Be like Moses, who chose the reproach of the Messiah. Be like Jesus, who despised the shame of the cross in order to be our Savior. By following Jesus and joining Him outside the gate, we are joining Him who in His human nature learned obedience and was perfected. We may not suffer to the point of shedding blood, but we may well endure shame and reproach because of our having joined Jesus. I want to say, when it comes down to it, the people I've known who've fallen away, the people I know who have retreated from their Christian testimony, without minimizing the heartache and heartbreak of their experience, at some point in their life, the reproach of Jesus was too much for them. Too much for them. Maybe it is for you this morning. It is getting harder, isn't it, to admit to being a Christian? It is getting harder. The world will make it harder still. Look at Europe. Look at the United Kingdom. It's getting harder to say that you are a Christian. But it's the reproach of Jesus, and the call this morning is to join Jesus. You have to make that conscious decision. I will, in my life, join Jesus rather than the world. That's why he reminds us when he says that. We have no permanent city. In other words, if, you, if you're a child of God, you don't belong here anyway. You know you're a foreigner here. You belong to another kingdom. You serve another king. Your allegiance is higher. Our citizenship is in heaven. From whence we await a Savior. Join Jesus. Worship God. Let's offer sacrifices of praise continually to God through Him. And let's serve others. Verse 70, 18. Don't neglect to do good. Serve others. That's our duty, isn't it? Join Jesus, worship God, and serve others. That is what Christian calling is. Apparently, by those indices and measurements, a man can say that he is no longer a Christian. I want to ask you this morning, by those indices and measurements, can you call yourself a Christian? Can you call yourself a Christian? Maybe today you're going to become a Christian. Maybe today you're going to join Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take these words, which are your word, head out anything of self, put in everything of the Lord Jesus, and draw our hearts out after him, we pray, in his strong name. Amen.